We're working through Nehemiah. This is part three. And I just kind of came up with the title this morning, Why Some People's Prayers Will Never Be Answered. And I have a, I have a, a, a text I want to read. It's a long text. Is it in the notes? The whole text? Wow. Okay, 1 to 20. <clears throat> Follow along as I read. I read this last Sunday night, but we're continuing with the same story. And I'm just assuming not everyone was here last Sunday night. And if, even if you were, you might not remember the text, the gist, the story. Nehemiah writes, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's what we took most time talking about last Sunday night. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And I went to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night, by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite 
servant and, sorry, Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We're looking at people who are miraculously brought out of bondage into freedom. It happened under Artaxerxes. That was two Sunday nights ago. We were studying that. They're finally brought back into their rightful place, the city of Jerusalem. It's still in ruins, but it's the place where they belong, and they're back. At least a lot of them are back. The work of restoration had begun in Jerusalem, some of the walls of the temple have been reconstructed under earlier groups of workers. It's possible that some sacrifices were once again being offered to the true God. But the fact that the work had started, here's the point of comparison. We're talking about rebuilding a life, how God rebuilds a life. The fact that the work was begun didn't mean there still wasn't a lot to do. God had brought many of them back. God had brought a measure of deliverance, and now they had to rebuild. The point is, it's, it's one thing to be delivered. It's another thing to learn to live as a delivered person. Last week, we studied two foundational points. First, the importance of knowing the proper time for action. Remember Nehemiah? He's five months waiting, silently, praying. And second, the centrality of praying without ceasing. Between the king's question, what is it that you want, and Nehemiah's answer, and I prayed to the Lord of heaven. And the instant prayer flowed out of five months of waiting before God and getting a feel for what God was wanting him to do. Now on to point number three, and it's this. The power of prayer must be backed up by sound character and diligence. It's hard to see it, but it's in that little fifth verse. And I said to the king, what is it you want? King says to Nehemiah. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and underline, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Prayer, I prayed to the God of heaven. And life, if your servant has found favor in your sight. Those are the two things that work together. You, you, you can't pray with power and live life carelessly and poorly. Prayer isn't something I can just tack on to the rest of who I am. It Prayer flows out of my walk before the Lord on a daily basis. And I'm not perfect and you aren't perfect and all sorts of stuff happens. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just my integrity of desire before the Lord to do the right thing as best I can in whatever circumstances I find. The walls for a lot of 
he's talking about stuff that's in rubble. That's what they're rebuilding. They wouldn't have to if it wasn't all broken down and messed up. Maybe that's where you find yourself. Prayer and doing the right thing. Prayer and honoring the Lord. Those two things have to go together. Nehemiah didn't just pray about Artaxerxes, the king. The text said he did a good job for him every day of his life. He served well. There are things in your life and in my life, there are things, whatever rubble you're living with, there are things that will open the door for future opportunities of God's grace in my life that I don't even see right now as I'm just doing them faithfully. Did I word that well so you can understand what I was saying? There are things God will open up in the future in my life, and some of the things he will use to open up the door to his grace down the road are things that to me seem quite ordinary and mundane right now. How many mornings did Nehemiah just get up as cupbearer to the king and just do his thing faithfully, regularly? And I doubt that he ever saw that had something to do with generations being delivered and free back to Jerusalem. But it did. There might be someone in the group right now, and you, you, you sit here and you think, I, God, boy, Amara and Natty, going to the mission field, boy, I want to do that. That's what... God's calling me. And he might be. And I'll tell you how he's going to get you ready, if that's what he's doing. Here's how he's going to open the door down the road in your life. He might have you teaching a Sunday school class here, well, faithfully, over and over and over and over again. And you might not see the connection between, I just did it well, to the best of my ability, and I trusted God to use it and open the door for something down the road that I don't even see yet. That's what's happening here. It was the quality of Nehemiah's work for the king that made the king concerned about Nehemiah's health. You're not looking good. You're sad. Nehemiah's diligence at a simple, perhaps boring, daily assignment opened the door for his life-changing conversation with the king, his prayer, and God working a miracle. But it wasn't Just at that point of prayer, it started long before in his service, faithfully, regularly. There's great application to all of our lives. You pray for your unsaved boss. That's good. Do you do a good job at the office? See, that's tied in with that. You pray for your teenager, and that's good. Are you a good example in what you watch on TV? Do you sacrifice material things so you can spend time with them? Do you make sure you have your family in church regularly on Sunday in Christian ed? You pray for your kids. Do they see you fight with your wife? Do you pray for your church? Do you gossip, complain? Are you attending regularly? 
Do your children hear you badmouth the body of Christ when they're at home? All of those are just examples. You could make a long list. The point is, the power of prayer is greatly magnified when it is linked up together with faithfulness in little things. Prayer is powerful when my actions and my prayers aren't going in two different directions, but are going in the same direction. You can see it in the scriptures. I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one, 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul talking to young Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. My conscience, listening to my conscience, has a lot to do with the quality of my faith in God and in sacred things and in prayer. Perhaps the strongest principle of this is found in 1 John 3, 21 and 22. John writes, and John's an old man when he writes this. It's probably the last thing he wrote. He's in his 90s. Beloved, here's my advice, John says. If our heart does not condemn us, okay, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because, because we, we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It would be easy to miss it. I'm not saying that we earn God's answer to our prayers by our good lives. My best deeds never earn me credit with my creator. What I am saying is God looks with pleasure on the faith of the one coming in prayer and a life lived in known contradiction to the will of God will only allow me to come with a very shabby, half-hearted faith. For When the opportunity opens, Nehemiah gives proper attention to details. I want to talk to you about details. The saying used to be, the devil is in the details. I'd like to change it. The Holy Spirit is in the details. Verses 6 to 8, chapter 2. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. The king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah's faith in God did not exclude his need to think through the entire situation himself. It wasn't magic that God was doing. God does at times call someone just to act in sheer obedience without any thought to the consequences. Just follow me, Abraham, classic case in point. And there are situations where God works that way, 
but it's not his normal way of working. Nehemiah does not just say, praise God, I'm going to go put the walls up. Let's go. If the walls are going to be rebuilt, here's what it's going to take. I just want to run through these quick. A, Nehemiah gets letters of permission from the king. You know why he does that? This is really an important point. God's going to use him for something, okay? Nehemiah does not want to leave until he has letters of permission from the king because Nehemiah is already, hasn't set a foot out the door. He's already anticipating opposition to what he wants to do. I'm going to need letters of permission. I'm going to, it's like a visa. I'm going to have to show this. I'm going to be in trouble. Nehemiah knows there's going to be opposition. People will question him. People will oppose him. People will wonder about his rights to do what he's doing. And so he's going to need the king's endorsement, and he's going to need it in writing. He knows it's God's will. He trusts in the Lord. He's prayed, but he's not stupid. He knows there are enemies. He knows that all the opposition isn't likely to disappear overnight. Do you know how many times Christians start out in any number of fine Christian ventures, serving the Lord, doing something that God's called them to do, and end up surprised and discouraged because, well, because they faced opposition from people all around them. Or they encounter difficulty and trial in their ministry undertaking, so they assume, well, this, this can't be God's will, or surely it will go a lot smoother than this. He gets letters of permission because he knows there's going to be opposition. Two, he's calculated the materials he's going to need, not only to start the job, but to finish it. To do anything... You need supplies. Work wears you down. Construction, any kind of construction, especially personal reconstruction, takes time and it takes resources. So this isn't just, oh, praise God, let's get the walls going. That's great, Nehemiah. How are you going to build the walls? What are you building them with? How long is it going to take? Calculating the length of time, how much material will you need to get the whole job done? You're going to need permission from Asaph in the king's force. He's not just going to give you this without that. There is a cost to accomplishing anything worthwhile for God. Excitement fades over time. You won't get all the way home. It's great out of the gate. I'm not knocking it. But you won't get all the way home on emotions. Jesus taught so much about the importance of thinking things through to the completion, even when you're starting out. You know these words, Luke 14, 27 to 30. And the first verse, 27, I included it just to show the real subject Jesus is talking about isn't construction. He's talking about discipleship. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. So there's this cross. In the other passage, Jesus says you have to do it daily. So that's what he's talking about. Anything you want to do for Jesus, just growing in Jesus, there's a cost. Jesus says there's a cross. And then, 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And what we're talking about is the rebuilding of different areas of our lives. There's been deliverance. The start is made. We're at different places, all of us, moving on in our walk with Jesus. But there's rebuilding. There's one reason why our lives remain in needless rubble. And it's not because people with God's help couldn't put them back together. And it's not because people didn't have a general desire for things to be better than they are right now. Most of us have that. But generally, lives remain in rubble longer than God would like because people like I fail to give enough attention to the important details in the reconstruction of a life. You'd be amazed how many times the thought goes through my head. You know, after you've been here a while, I can, Sunday morning, you can look across the audience and you know most of the faces and you know, not all, but most of the people. You'd be amazed the number of times I, I sit by myself in my office and I think about A, B, C, D and the life situations that they're in. And I say to myself, Boy, you would think they'd work really hard at being in church regularly. But they don't. And do you know why they don't? Because they don't see the importance of the details. Oh, if God would wave a wand and make this new overnight, they're all in. But the details of our lives, serving in some area, studying the Bible regularly, deeply, giving it time, going to church regularly, building a life of private prayer. After people have repented, after they've prayed, after they've given their heart to Jesus, many times they don't see the importance of the little steps that would open up their lives to so many resources of God's helping, renewing grace. Major breakdowns and rubble come from small details overlooked for too long. Nehemiah wants the letters of permission because he knows there's going to be opposition. He wants provision for the timber because he knows what he wants to rebuild. He knows how long it's going to take. Five and we're done. Good work publicly requires good work privately. I've often wondered if you'd had like a, a, a movie set and we're filming this, what it would have looked like. Nehemiah, I arose in the night 
I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. There he goes, quietly. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon gate and to the dung gate. By the way, wouldn't that be a great address? Where do you live? Right by the dung gate. You And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. There's so much rubble, debris, things are broken down, piled. I can't, I can't navigate this. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet even told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the workers with me. They didn't know either. I just, I just went out and did this. What's he doing? As far as we know from the text, we're just guessing, but as far as we know from the text, this is the first time Nehemiah actually looks at the broken down walls close up. Obviously, when he's back with Artaxerxes, he hears about the state of affairs. It saddens him. Now he gets on this animal all by himself, and he goes at nights, and he wants to see everything right there, close up. He won't allow anyone else to be his eyes for him. He wants an accurate, an accurate picture of just how bad the situation is. He, is. he is eliminating surprises that might lie up the road. Where are the areas that are worse than others? Where will special craftsmen need to be employed? Nehemiah doesn't want anything to hinder the work once it's begun. And that's what Jesus said. You don't go into battle until you've figured out the exact size of the enemy's army. You don't start a building until you know exactly what the entire project with inflation is going to cost. Nehemiah had heard about the sorry state of the city's walls, but that's not the same as seeing it and feeling it. I wonder wonder how many people never get things back together in their lives because unlike Nehemiah, they never take three days' time alone in the dark to get so desperately disgusted with their present state before the Lord that they want wholeness more than they want water. I can tell you, and other pastors could tell you the same thing, I can tell you how hard it is, how hard it is to sit across from someone and get them to say the words, I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. I'm an idolater. You know what? I'm just a complainer. I grumble. I'm a hypocrite. Just to say, Pastor, I'm just badly backslidden, and I need to get right with Jesus. It doesn't happen that often. There's ways, 
There's ways of skirting around all sorts of things. In this study, the assignment we need to have, the Holy Spirit needs to press into our minds, is this need for thoroughness in the rebuilding of our lives. Whatever's broken in my life didn't get broken overnight. And even though forgiveness is instantaneous, reconstruction isn't. And I don't want to live my Christian life, nor should you, confusing the initial thrill of forgiveness with the ongoing assignment of discipleship. You see the two things? It's the only way to keep your life free and clean in Jesus. There's so many lessons in there about rebuilding, remembering the opposition, counting the costs, remembering the details, and honestly analyzing your spiritual state. Those are the steps that start this off. We're not done yet. As we go through the book, you'll see that those steps get kind of repeated over and over again as fundamental building blocks of how God reorganizes and rebuilds our lives with whatever rubble we presently possess. We're not disqualified. God's not done. Keep following.